Hello, people. Welcome to Techno Social. If you like what we're doing, then please consider liking us on YouTube and on your podcast provider, sharing our content round, and generally telling people about it. And maybe even consider giving us a donation on patreon.com forward slash techno social. Justin, thank you for being here, mate. Happy to be here. Thanks Wanted for inviting me. I to start me. off with um, taking a, a little quote out of an essay that you wrote a couple of years ago that kind of struck me, and I thought it'd be quite cool to get you to expand on what you meant by it. So it goes, hence the need for a fundamentally anti-bourgeois revolutionary intellectual culture, cold enough to seek all the darkest truths, but still warm enough not to betray the calling of solidarity. What were you thinking when you wrote that? I think that compassion and compassion is, you must recall, a defining aspect of left-wing personality traits if you look at it empirically. Compassion is great for a lot of reasons and it's an important part of the human condition and one that should be retained. Uh, it's, it's, it's valuable and, and important. It's also a drawback. It also has costs or pitfalls. And I think this is just not understood, that compassion has trade-offs. There are good things and bad things about compassion. And one of the worst aspects of compassion is that it can be blinding. It can be blinding to what is real, to what is true. And that is how I would diagnose one of the kind of foundational problems or shortcomings of the contemporary political left, is that compassion has uh, become too primary and if you prioritize compassion above all else, you're pretty much doomed to having a just absolutely useless empirical model of how things actually work. And if you don't have a reasonably uh, rigorous mental model of how things actually work, then you're, you're technically precisely incapable of changing anything about how things work. You're just going to be kind of you know, spinning your wheels and burning fuel trying to create manipulations on the world that go nowhere, that just repeatedly fail to produce the, the changes that you want to see or that you hope to see. And that is what I was thinking when I, when I wrote that, that line that you quoted. Uh, to, to my mind, if you want to have a real revolutionary left that is able to fundamentally overthrow institutions, you need to have other priorities and values that, that, that counterbalance compassion. It can't be compassion all the way down. You need a good dose of coldness, of analytical coldness, and uh, confidently, coolly looking straight in the face, whatever the actual situation is. And that's often a horrifying situation. It's often a painful situation. Um, certain people don't have certain abilities. Certain people are uh, stuck in particular ruts. That it, It's quite painful and sad to confront that. Uh, but if we want to have any chance of actually militantly overthrowing the dominant order of injustice and inequality that we see in the world today, that leftists compassionately want to change, if you want to have any chance of that, you have to be. You need to at least have some people on your team. It can be different people. I'm not saying individuals have to have both a perfect balance of compassion and coldness because that's not likely. Uh, people do have different personality traits, but you do need to have at least on your team a certain balance of compassion and and cold analytical rigor, at least across people. And so what I was putting forward at that time and, and then some other writings uh, to that effect is basically that what I think the revolutionary left would really want is to just have at least some people who are allowed to engage in a kind of brutal analytical coldness. That would be the case that I would make. It's like, you don't have to like analytical coldness. You can find it icky to talk about human differences, for instance. That's fine. You don't have to. Uh, but at least allow a few people on your team to take up that somewhat cold, uh, painful area of analysis and, 
and and research to actually figure out what a meaningful left could and should do concretely. Mm-hmm. And is the issue at the moment with a lot of the the, the bourgeois academic culture, as I think you, you phrase it, that it plays too strongly towards this care and compassion and shying away from some of the, the coldness and the analyticalness and also thinkers who might be considered uncomfortable or unsavory. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also worth noting that pure compassion not counterbalanced by any type of analytical rigor actually becomes its own type of cruelty. And this is the perverse kind of paradoxical effects that we're seeing today with, with the, the contemporary radical left. You know, a lot of the right wingers look at the contemporary radical left that's, you know, that we, that we see in the streets today uh, and think that it's basically this kind of like disingenuous cabal of, of resentful left wingers who actually just use the vocabulary of compassion as a thin veneer to basically hide what is their true underlying nature of of murder and violence and and wanting to steal from the rich and uh this is this is i think a popular mental model that right wingers see of the left and i don't think that's actually accurate i do think that the overwhelming majority of the left-wing militants you're seeing today engaging in uh pretty pretty i think ridiculous and uh, and and quite destructive uh norms and behaviors they are actually at their in the heart of hearts pursuing compassion. They're compassionate people. They, they're genuinely upset at the sight of unjust uh, police killings of black people. They're genuinely upset at the existence of homelessness and uh, perverse inequalities. These things genuinely cause them real pain because they are genuinely really compassionate people and they do want to overthrow unjust structures out of a sense of compassion. But what you're seeing paradoxically is that if it's just compassion on steroids, nothing else balancing it out, no other competing values uh, or priorities within an organization or a movement, you're actually going to get a really perverse kind of uh, psychotic and eventually destructive and and cruel uh, phenomena, such as the the witch hunts that you're seeing today, such as the kind of uh, sacrificial victims that you're seeing today, and all of the weird, uh, somewhat like Stalin-esque uh, formations that can emerge uh, in the contemporary left today. That it is possible that compassion is essentially at the core of that. And that's how I am inclined to read it. Justin, how do you connect this inclination towards compassion uh, with the way that the market and capitalism, also known as woke capitalism today, tries to recuperate that and integrate that into a project that in many ways sounds accelerationist? Maybe you could say a little bit more about, it sounds like you you have a thesis in there, but you phrased (laughs) that as a question. I would much rather hear your thesis. That's a good reply. Well, let's, let's drop the accelerationism outside of it first. Uh, What do you think are the main things that the, that woke capitalism tries to integrate from this proclivity to compassion? Um, Right. So the way I see this is that you have these, extremely compassionate people who are kind of hijacked by their own compassion. As I said before, they're pursuing um, techniques of, of social manipulation, techniques of you know, building what they would say as building a social movement. They're pursuing action on the world. They're trying to change the world around them. But because they're so gung-ho on compassion and they prohibit an- cold analytical rigor, it's what I said before, they're, they're constantly failing to produce the results that they want on the world. Uh, they're constantly... In basically uh, producing effects that they fundamentally were not expecting and fundamentally did not want because they're just, they're operating in a false model of the world. That's, that's terribly uh, kind of distorted and biased by just the sheer compassion. And what happens is woke capital, what is called woke capital for people listening who don't know what we're referring to exactly that that's basically the kind of co-option of wokeness by corporations and you see it uh, more and more now right now i mean we are in in uh you know june 2020 we are in a high water mark for this with the black lives matter the corporate the woke capital is really ticking up a notch it's it's rather remarkable uh what's going on there is guess what 
someone is stepping in to provide the analytical coldness that the left is not able to provide for itself. That's exactly how I would interpret it. Um, in other words, you could have, you can imagine a radical left where there's a bunch of compassionate people, but then they allow people like me to uh, kind of say provocative, transgressive things that are maybe really hard to hear and uncomfortable to hear. And they sound kind of cruel or something like that. Uh, but they see that someone like me is genuinely interested in the same kind of emancipatory social transformations that they want. So they allow people like me to do the analytical coldness. And I can, you know, run my digital businesses and I can uh, say provocative, transgressive, uh, cold analytical truths. I can do these kinds of uh, cold analytical types of practices and behaviors in support of, in cooperation with the, the social movements for, for social justice. That is a totally viable possibility. That, that's kind of my vision of the radical left. You know, you bring in your own coldness people to do the tasks of coldness that no one in the compassionate wing of the left wants to do. And in that way, you can build a, a real ship that can sail and, and actually produce desirable, uh, predictable ripples on the social fabric. But because people like me are not allowed in the left, even though I'm like a genuine leftist in pretty much every way, I have some kind of culturally conservative uh, leanings, but at the end of the day, I'm basically, I, I'm basically on board with what all of the, you know, rioters want and what all of the current kind of social justice types want. At the end of the day, I want the same kind of justice and equality. Uh, I'm, I'm motivated to, to get that like they are. Um, so they could let me on their team, they can allow me to remain like a member of the left. Uh, people like me are not allowed on the left. We're called like all right. I'm called alt right or whatever. Uh, but they could allow me to be on their team and to do some of the coldness functions. Uh, but they don't want that. So by pushing out all all people on their team who are willing to do the coldness functions, woke capital swoops in and manipulates the fuck out of them. And they have no they have no kind of engineering defenses against this. They have no mimetic or operational. Uh, way to prevent that at all. Uh, and so that's, that's how I would connect uh, the, the diagnosis of compassion with the woke capital phenomenon. Very cool. I love that you talked about so Alexander Bard um, yeah, put on. out a tweet yesterday that I've been thinking about a lot, which was something along the lines of the issue with the idea of systemic racism is that it assumes that class conflict is the outcome of racism as opposed to racism being the outcome of class conflict. It's kind of a mistaken uh, order of causality there. And I find it very interesting to be thinking through it. I think the way in which woke capital the the values of the protests we're seeing today are so easily adopted by big business by and indeed by the kind of wealthiest and most elite among society and these businesses that could very much at the same time be a clothing company exploiting workers out in bangladesh but are putting on their instagram page and on their twitter pages we support Black Lives Matter, we want racial equality here. There's this way that it's, a, it's like a screen to hide behind. You can, ex, you can hide the, the exploitative nature of the capital relations and just point to, to the racial conflicts, which are, I think, second order effects of that. As a way, I can jail, get out of jail free card. It's like we, we're on the right side and we don't have to change anything. Hmm. Yeah, I think I see what you're saying. Mm. And I wonder if as well, often well-meaning people like the memes without having to really get their hands dirty. You know, you were talking about there's compassion is the, the supreme value say on a lot of the on a lot of the left but if they're not willing to do the analytical rigor and indeed get the hands dirty mm -hmm. where do we go it feels like limbic capitalism takes advantage of woke capitalism and of people's proclivity towards a b or c that might be maybe compassion that might be maybe a revolutionary project but limbic capitalism recuperates it all. That, that was kind of my point a while ago with the accelerationism idea, with the idea that the market is so uh, all encompassing.
that will end up eating everything, even its own critique. Right. Well, all of this, all of the, the increasing kind of insanity of the social justice politics, I mean, that is accelerationism. It's, it, it's, it's part and parcel with accelerationism. It's these people's emotions are being supercharged and hijacked at an accelerating rate that they don't even fully understand. And the way that woke capital kind of swoops in and works perfectly well with it. This is all, this is all acceleration. This is, this is everyone being pulled into circuits of kind of energy and exchange that they don't even fully process, that they can't even fully process because in fact, the mechanisms are, are above their heads. It's operating at a more complex level than they're even able to compute. Uh, and that complex level is essentially the artificial intelligence that is global capitalism. I mean, global capitalism is pulling the strings. And when you look at the social justice warrior types, like those people are essentially following orders that have already been laid out in front of them by woke capital, not woke capital as agents. Like if you not like the CEOs of corporations are pulling these strings, it's not that it's that the global market order is specifying what needs to happen next, what should happen next. And these, uh, the, the social justice activists are really just uh, obeying the orders of what is rational for them to obey, frankly, for the types of people that they are. Uh, they're just, they're not able to, to compute the, the circuits of causality within which they're actually uh, operating and contributing. Let's, let's dissect that because that's hitting the nail on the head. Um, you, I, saw, I saw in one of your videos when you were talking about the laws about this becoming imperceptible of trying to enact a project that is not yet discursified. Now, what we see a lot of the people doing today is using the means that have already been laid out for them by say, well, capital and the march of capital in many ways. I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about how, um, what's the project behind well, capital? We know, I mean, I think it was Deleuze or Orland who called it thanatropic machinism meaning that it's this bed uh, as a non-living machine desire progressing throughout history and deterritorializing things. Um, do you have any thoughts on, on the nature of this capital, uh, on the nature of the relations that capital presupposes? What mm. is it? Who is it? What does it want? Hmm. Well, in some ways, I think that particular agents operating within capitalism don't really know what capitalism wants in an ultimate sense. The ultimate teleology is, is kind of uh, in its nature unclear to us. Now, I have a very unique and idiosyncratic perspective on this uh, because I'm a Christian. Uh, or, you know, you could say I'm a Christian because I have an idiosyncratic reading of this accelerationist phenomenon that uh, leads me to believe in a kind of Christian eschatology. I mean, in my view, the accelerationist framework really does point to the rationality and the legitimacy uh, of a essentially Christian eschatology. Because in my view, uh, we it, it is a fact that where exactly capitalism is going, what exactly capitalism is optimizing for in the long run sense, we really don't know. And it, it's a true kind of cosmological mystery and to me, it, the, it's actually the, the, the Christian eschatology that best reflects that. Like the Christian eschatology actually seems to be one of the most compelling and realistic uh, de descriptive models for actually what, uh, what is the situation we're facing that's becoming increasingly clear in this kind of uh, postmodern uh, digital context that, that we're all living in in the 2020s. And so that's that's frankly, how I see it. In other words, when all we know as agents is that we have these kind of rational sticks and carrots in front of us, right? And, and, and we are limited creatures. We can only see so far uh, because global capitalism is literally a kind of complex computational machinery that is doing calculations at a level that we can't understand. So the price, the price mechanism, for instance, if you just look at how prices function in society, prices the price of a good or service changes due to a large number of social interactions that are happening away from me, so, right? So I might look at a market and see the price of something rising or falling. That's literally a signal being transmitted to me, one person, based on 
a large number of interactions that are happening in places I can't see, right? So capitalism and just to use the price, the price mechanism uh, as, as an example of, of capitalism. I think it's kind of the best concrete kind of way to imagine what capitalism really is as a kind of signaling system, a chain, kind of ordering around the behaviors of human, of human individuals. If you think about the price mechanism in this way, then all I get is a signal of, of what type of good or service there should be more of, or there should be less of. And this is information about how I can increase my chances of survival, how I can, you know, pay my own way to, to survive in life. Right. So it's this very limited context that any individual or entity sees. And this applies also for CEOs of, of corporations, right? All the way up, no matter how smart you are. Um, even people with, you know, supercomputers can't compute what global capitalism is computing in some non-trivial sense uh, over and above all of our heads. So we get these little signals, right? Um, and where does it go? It's literally beyond our capacities to compute. And in a technical way, in a technical sense. And to me, that's that's very, very convergent with what a lot of the religious traditions have thought of as God. I mean, the, with global capitalism and its highly developed advanced state that we have today, it is literally true that there is a kind of agent, even though it's a system, it's not really capitalism, it's not a person. There is in some sense a type of entity or agent that is above all of our heads, pulling the strings in ways that we don't fully understand. I mean, if that's not a kind, if that's not what, people have in mind when they talk about God throughout the ages in different religious traditions, then uh, I, I can't imagine what would be a more kind of realistic and uh, concrete kind of uh, manifestation or evidence that something like a God does exist in the world. I'm not saying that capitalism is God. I would not say that. However, there's something going on there that hasn't really been uh figured out. And, and that's kind of my, that's one of my research agendas. Um, I would, I currently think of it as something more like capitalism is this kind of autonomous increasing of intelligence in the universe itself. It's something like that. It's like the capitalism is the universe trying to grow, like the universe intrinsically growing its own intelligence. And we are but pawns in that process of the, of the universe basically becoming more and more intelligent and global capitalism, the way that it's able to order our behaviors is basically m using us as pawns to make itself more intelligent. And I think this, you can translate that into, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty scientific narrative. Lots of AI experts would, you know, more or less um, could more or less agree with something like that. You get on board with something like that. And uh, I think you can translate that essentially into the Christian eschatology in which um, God uh, kind of created the universe and then through us through you know the through us the god kind of um develops or unfolds um mm -hmm. over time uh and yeah i think that's not at all provocative that's not at all even mm -hmm. uh crazy or controversial so uh that's that's how i see it i don't know if that gives you any uh i don't know if, i don't know if that's at all satisfying for you but that's how that's i see brilliant. it that's that's precisely where, where we wanted to take this conversation uh cheeky follow-up very short is it God or is it the Antichrist? Right. Great question. Yeah. So this, this, is, this is the major problem. And again, this is where I think the, the, the Christian eschatology is really useful because in the Christian eschatology, there is this kind of eternal battle, right, between good and evil. And um, it, sure as hell do, it sure as hell kind of looks to me like uh, a lot of individuals are increasingly kind of uh, captured by a kind of satanic process that they don't fully understand. Um, and so capital, like is capitalism God or is capitalism Satan, right? And I'm inclined to think the way that I think about it is if, if we use the term capitalism and the, or the capitalist system as basically a placeholder for instrumental rationality, more or less, is, is what is really at stake, I think. And that, that's really what I would urge people to drill down into. Instrumental rationality is, is Satan, and capitalism is essentially what emerges when everyone is operating according to instrumental rationality. Capitalism is kind of like the generalization of instrumental rationality as, yep. the, as the defining norm for what individuals should do, what society ought to look like. Uh, for those who are listening who maybe don't know what I'm talking about, instrumental rationality is uh, pretty much just uh, when you're trying to basically optimize uh for a particular desirable outcome and you're trying to do that as effectively or as efficiently as possible. Uh, so 
capitalism, in other words, it's it's the defining rationality of modernity of capitalism, basically trying to get as much stuff as you can from as uh, from the least amount of input. Uh, it's efficiency, essentially, in some ways. It's a calculating uh, kind of approach to rationality. Mm-hmm. Now, as people like mm-hmm. Max Weber, the the famous sociologist, uh, pointed out and and analyzed this in detail, there are other forms of rationality throughout time and, and space. There have there have been societies and and uh, contexts in which other types of rationality have prevailed. And one is what he calls ethical substantive rationality, and that's pretty much where you have a kind of uh, commitment to a particular ethical value, which is categorical. It's non-negotiable. It's not calculable. There is no price that you could pay me to deviate from this ethical value commitment. And Weber shows that this is a kind of rationality. Like it's not an irrational type of um, kind of exception to the rule of rationality. It is its own kind of rationality. There is a logic to why there's a rationality to why one should have certain values that are non-negotiable, that are, that are absolutely exempt from the rational calculus of, of, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the give and take and the negotiations of, of instrumental rationality. And of course the, the religious traditions uh, are one of the major kind of uh, defenders of these kind of traditional ethical substantive rationalities. So in my, in my mental model of, of this larger question, it's like capitalism as the generalization of instrumental rationality is essentially uh, the instrumental rationality part is essentially Satan. That's, that's like Mephistopheles. That, that is uh, the temptation to just get more and more goods, right? Get more and more for yourself. Uh, the kind of satanic notion that you can have done with God, that you can have done with core ethical value commitments uh, that constrain the maximization of, of pleasure or whatever the case might be. That, uh, so, so what we're watching right now is the increasing takeoff of uh, instrumental rationality as such, as the, as the only kind of defining norm of society. So it sure does look like society, like Western civilization is basically shooting off into its, its um, utter demise via kind of satanic capitulation. Uh, and I think that's why there's a lot of conspiracy theories right now around like, you know, uh, satanic uh, pedophile cults among the, the, the powerful and the elites, right? I think that's not accidental. And uh, so I, I, re- I totally recognize I'm kind of uh, going way off on, on many different tangents, but I'm trying to kind of bring it back together for you. <laughs> uh, basically, the way, that I, the way that I ultimately come down on this, I think, is that um, there is a necessity to retain ethical uh, kind of substantive ethical rationality where we have certain values that we commit to without negotiation, without any, without any compromise and that are, refu- that are, that, that, that refuse to be bought off to me. Like this is the Christian calling in the accelerationist context is uh, to have core values that you won't compromise on no matter how much money people are willing to throw at you. And to me, the main one is the truth, the truth as such. And this brings us back to coldness and analytical, you know, to, to the analytical coldness that is necessary for society to to really function, it's that's a very very Christian imperative. It's very explicit in the Christian in the Christian narrative. Um, one should tell the truth at all costs, no matter what, and to never deviate on that. To me, that's that's kind of the the solution, if you ask me, to navigating this kind of accelerating uh, situation that we're in, which is stick to the truth no matter what. Don't allow any instrumental temptations that capitalism provides to uh, send you off course of. Of the truth, have a kind of substantive, ethical, rational commitment to the truth at all costs. And if people do this, if enough people do this, I think you get to the kingdom of heaven. And or I think even if it's just an individual does this by themselves and they're killed for it or they're martyred or whatever uh, or canceled, right? Uh, if that individual just sticks to the truth and nothing else, then that person finds the kingdom of heaven. That person enters the kingdom of heaven. And you can debate what that means. I don't, I personally don't believe in any kind of, you know, supernatural things. I think there is a understanding of this concept of the kingdom of heaven. The whole point, what Jesus says is like to bring the kingdom of heaven down to earth. So I think that if you uh, really commit to the truth, uh, absolutely. Mm. And in a non-conditional, non-compromising way, you really do have this unique kind of power emerges to actually create a kind of kingdom of heaven on earth uh, for you and the people around you and possibly for other people who do this. And I think if you can communicate this idea and other people can do it, then you can expand that kingdom of heaven and, and possibly uh, allow it to to kind of take over. But uh, if you don't commit to the truth and you just capitulate to instrumental rationality, which is 
what capitalism generalizes, then you get what we have today, which is a kind of increasingly chaotic and horrifying trajectory for, for civilization as a whole. And those and, and people who just submit to instrumental rationality, that's literally, I think, submitting to Satan. That's essentially the Faustian, that's the Faustian uh, bargain. People, most people today in modern society have made this Faustian bargain. They've, 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 ex- they've gained extraordinary power for themselves uh, to do things and have pleasure and different types of of earthly power, but they've literally obtained it through a bargaining with the devil where they have basically uh, sacrificed uh, something like truth telling, for instance, in order to get power. And that is just a path straight to hell. And I think there are a lot of people who are uh, on a path straight to hell. And I think our civilization in many ways is on a path straight to hell, but this is all said, and this is, this is literally what the Christian eschatology says is that what will happen. So I know, I know I'm totally uh, ranting like crazy, but I think that is a a fairly comprehensive uh, statement of my view. And you did ask, so you get what he asked for. (laughs) Appreciate it. Um, such a, love the rant, man. There's, there's something that, that caught my attention when, when you were speaking, and truth in itself was one of the first things to be attacked in the, by Nietzsche, by the death of God and authority, authority itself, with the wars of the 20th century, and the dissolution of previous forms of colonial patriarchy, which was based on a truth, a previous truth in itself, an authority as such. And then as postmodernism and now the digital age move forward, obviously that's uh, precisely the... the feels like a red herring at this point. Rather, you could put 10 people in a room talking about truth and all agreeing in principle that they will search for truth and they will not reach an agreement by the end on which they can operate and sustain a base of operation. So it feels like truth is a process and you're a Deleuzean. You know that it's not a philosophy, that one of the interesting things is not philosophies of things as such, rather philosophies of how things become, of the processes. So I don't know if you're aware of Heidegger's notion which also maps precisely to Christian eschatology, uh, namely the a thousand year rule of the Antichrist before the second coming, which uh, Heidegger talks on the question of technology about this idea where as technology grows and grows in power and, uh, and it encompasses the whole world, so does the saving power simultaneously increase until a moment where at the midnight hour, there's going to be an inversion, kind of a deus ex machina, which is necessitated in principle by you know the scapegoating event of christ dying on the cross and our vicarious uh, being saved by him (laughs) there's that and there's always the smirk of mesphistopheles saying yeah but i can hijack that at any moment and that's and that's i think that ties so precisely with accelerationism which is what does accelerationism seek with this destruction or salvation Hell yeah. This is very well put. Yeah. And that's the eternal question. And, you know, there's this idea of, you know, don't immunitize the eschaton. And I, I think that's kind of what you're helping to do right now is, you know, that it always has, it always seems that we are uh, heading towards this kind of uh, eschatological turning point. It, it, it's, it has always seemed like that to people at all times. Right. And it's important to remember that, uh, that that's the case and that our, our particular time is, is probably not as exceptional as it might feel to us. And um, I think you pretty much captured that in, in your comment, which was very apropos, that this is a kind of eternal struggle and, and there is this kind of profound existential uncertainty as to, as to where things ultimately go. And uh, if you know, there is that kind of last minute inversion, as, as you very nicely put it, uh, but, you know, I follow here a kind of Kierkegaardian attitude in which the Christian position is to basically admit that profound uncertainty and ambiguity and to say, nonetheless, I choose to adopt the affirmative position. I choose to have faith in the affirmative position uh, for many different reasons. I think you can, you, you know, you can have a lot of discussions about why that is the right choice and why that is a good choice or why that is an aesthetically pleasing choice. There are many different ways you can think about that or justify that or, or talk about that. Uh, but ultimately it is a kind of leap of faith and uh, it, it is a kind of uh, very personal, essentially kind of obscure and mysterious confrontation with the absolute uncertainty of, of the outside that one has to kind of make that decision by oneself without a handrail, without any kind of guardrail. And that's essentially the existentialist yeah. 
uh, plateau, if you will, and that comes through, of course, uh, Kierkegaard, and and it's it's essentially a kind of uh, Christian attitude as well. I think. Yeah, there's few philosophers that uh, talk about eschatology and their writings, and especially in the writings on politics and geopolitics. One is Dugan, which you, I'm, I would assume you know. I know of him, of course. I, the truth is I'm not terribly familiar with his work. If you want to kind of recapitulate some, some ideas, I, just, I'd be happy yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. I'm just bringing him up, uh, and I tend to do that often because he's probably one of the few people who actually has a component of, of explicit eschatology, whereas mm. you know, many, you know, the left doesn't have an eschatology uh, explicitly, but it has implicitly, which is in a way also mm. Kierkegaardianly Christian, doing the right thing justice, equality, and obviously that going through the, the, the phylum of humanism and liberalism and modernity. What Dugan does is he provides kind of another pathway for that salvific story uh, that says that modernity is the antichrist. And he says that, hey, liberalism in the American humanist, uh, you know, human rights type way is wrong. Go to another way, go do the Russian way, the, the, the Putin way, which is in itself kind of weird. I don't know. I just, I just love the idea that there's, there's to actually be able to formulate the North star as an eschatology, as a soteriology, as this doctrine of where we want to go to save ourselves feels Mm. like such an essential thing that not too many philosophies do. And the ones that do might, you know, their accelerationism does that. It's a nihilistic one, but it does that. Dugan does that. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a good case to be made that modernity is the antichrist. Uh, I mean, it does seem to match very closely, essentially, what is uh, laid out in the in the Faust in the Faust myth, and um, you know, I think Heidegger diagnoses it a bit in the question concerning technology. I think that's, I think I, I think that's essentially what's what's going on. Of course, Heidegger doesn't say it's the Antichrist, but um, you do get this idea that that pretty much what happens at the dawn of modernity, what really sends us off into modernity. And for people listening who don't quite know this, perhaps you know, most of human history was stagnant economic growth is pretty much almost negligible for the overwhelming majority of human history it's only really around the industrial revolution that all of a sudden economic growth becomes a thing and if you look at this on a graph you know it's it's basically a very very long uh straight line uh close to zero and then all of a sudden uh around the time in the industrial revolution that line shoots up and then economic growth happens modernity happens uh so it, it really is this a profound and specific rupture in the course of of human history uh, that is rather extreme. And um, I do th- I interpret that essentially as you only kind of get that power through a bargain with the devil. And that's essentially what's happened. And now as things uh, accelerate digitally and, and technology becomes, uh, it seems to be uh, changing things fundamentally in ways that we can actually feel in a way that is kind of vertig- vertiginous for us. Um, that's essentially, the, you know, we're kind of watching uh, uh, the devil uh, com- coming, coming to claim his debts, I think. Mm. I think body. one of the other things that shines through in Dugan's political philosophy is this idea that globalism is also a manifestation of the Antichrist and that a way to return to a more spiritual and Christian, I guess he would phrase it, way of being is this more multipolar world, he calls it, where America is no longer the hegemon and where power is distributed much more through the East and through Asia and America has really lost its seat at the top. I wonder as a political scientist what your thoughts are on where we may be going in terms of geopolitics. Yeah, it's a great question and it's a difficult one. Uh, you know, forecasting uh, complex international phenomena is notoriously difficult. So, you know, I think it is in the nature of complex systems to be pretty much unforecastable by, by humans within those, those complex systems. It's almost the definition of a complex system that uh, one cannot infer where the system is going to be a few steps forward. Um, so with that as a caveat uh, that I'm, I, I would urge everyone to be super, super skeptical of geopolitical forecasting uh, at any type of uh, pretending, pretended level of, 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 of granularity. Um, we can nonetheless, you know, it is interesting and worthwhile to speculate a bit on, on some of the tectonic shifts that seem to be happening. In, in my view, I mean, it is important to remember that America is still the global hegemon by far in terms of uh, military power projection. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, you know, China is a rising power for sure, uh, but they still don't have anywhere near the same kind of uh, ability to project military force around the world like America does. Nowhere near. 
so that, there's still a huge gap there. Um, Russia, you know, uh, is obviously a large country. They're resource rich, um, but it's still an extremely poor country. And, um, you know, I'm very, I'm, I'm interested in, I'm interested in kind of Russian anti-modern uh, philosophies. I'm, I'm curious and, and, you know, I guess there's some possibility that by retaining a, uh, by, by, by retaining a kind of traditional set of values and culture and not allowing modernity to, you know, uh, sink its teeth into Russian civilization that somehow kind of Russia will remain a powerful, strong society. But I mean, economically, they're not that they're not, I mean, they're not a wealthy country They're And, and frankly, you know, there's this idea in the political science literature of what they call the resource curse. Um, and so when countries can, when, when authoritarian rulers can retain power in large part because of a lot of natural resources, which is in a large part, the Russian case, um, a lot of the power and, and the economic power and the political power of uh, kind of the ruling class in Russia is uh, linked to the, the, the huge territory that Russia represents and the natural resources in that territory, oil in particular. Um, but they're not a rich country. They're not a particular, you know, they're not a particularly powerful um, military force in, in, in their ability to project power over, you know, around the world like the American military can. So, I mean... I wouldn't really, frankly, I would not yet put my money on China or Russia really um, becoming a a uh, new hegemon replacing the American one. I think China probably it, it's it's more worrisome. There's also this idea in the in the so so yeah, I, I think China's more worrisome for this question than 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 Russia um, because because of China's unique uh, kind of growth situation and, and their unique uh, kind of governance situation, which I think is more dynamic and more much more compelling than, than Russia. Um, now, there is this idea in the political science literature about uh, great power transitions, hegemonic transitions. And it's in fact, one of the, one of the contexts in which uh, interstate war is most likely is when uh, there's a, uh, decreasing hegemonic power and an increasing, uh, alt, you know, upstart alternative uh, hegemonic power. So the idea here would be that as, I mean, look, it certainly does seem to me that America is increasingly off the rails. The American uh, political system is increasingly incapable of, of weathering the storm of, you know, accelerating contemporary uh, technology and, and, and social, social problems. And, and biological problems such as pandemics or whatever. So it definitely does seem to me that the American, uh, that American power is probably overextended uh, geopolitically uh, from a lot of costly wars and uh, the internal situation of just American civilization and American uh, social and political vitality seems to definitely be be on the on the downslide for sure. It does that does seem to be the case to me. And and in some ways, China appears to be on the rise. So you could imagine. Uh, in the not too distant future, as China becomes more powerful and America becomes less powerful, that there's a serious risk of of, of major military conflict there. Uh, so I think mm-hmm. that's that's a legitimate live wire that people should be very worried about. I think, the, in fact, the probability of war between China and the United States is is much higher than people think, actually, on, than the average than the average citizen thinks. I think it was the political scientist uh, Graham Allison, uh, who's who's a, a very sophisticated China watcher. Um, who argues, I forget the number he put on it, but uh, he, he, he believes that the, the possibility of war between the United States and China right now, or something like, I forget, I'd have to check his book, but he says something like over the next X amount of years, he thinks the probability of war between US and China, a serious war is somewhere like around 50%. Okay, so that's a, I think that's a live wire. I don't know if it's that, I don't know what the probability is, but I think that's a serious live wire. Um, and yeah, that would, that, that's possible. But frankly, I think there's, I think there's a lot of, there's too much kind of pro China excitement in the, in the West. I think this is an interesting thing. And this will be my last comment on the question, which is uh, in educated circles in America, there seems to be a real fashion to think China's really cool and impressive and mm. China's going to take over the global economy. America is stupid uh, backwater with all of our like traditional concepts of the separation of powers and federalism and all of that. There, there's this popular fashionable attitude among educate, high education elites in America who say, who say this and think this. I don't buy that. I'm, I'm much more skeptical of China because mm-hmm. if you look at the political science research, there's just not much evidence to think that you can have an authoritarian political system and 
dynamic economic growth indefinitely. So my prediction for China would be that either, and this is just based on everything we know about all political systems in, in history, pretty much. Um, it's either going to keep getting rich and then it's going to liberalize and kind of converge toward the, the kind of Western, the, the Western kind of liberal democracy uh, equilibrium that most of the wealthy Western world is in. Um, China's either going to go down that path because it's a, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a strong attractor. That just is how mm-hmm. political systems develop, or they're going to retain their authoritarianism and it's going to choke off growth and they're not going to be able to sustain the, the high growth rates that they currently have if they choose to prioritize the authoritarian control of the, mm-hmm. of the CCP. I think it's probably going to be one or, one, one or the other. People, I think, are way too bullish on the idea that you can have this kind of authoritarian CCP and you know, super high growth rates indefinitely. I, I think there's no reason to believe that that's sustainable yet. I mean, maybe, maybe they're like a unique thing mm-hmm. in the history of, in the history of governance. Um, but if, if you're scientific and you look at the data, you should be extremely skeptical of that. But I, I see a lot of educated people who seem to have, have a lot of faith in that for, I don't know why. It's, it's precisely on that point that I wanted to, to start my next question, the educated people. So you, I saw in one of your videos, you were talking about stored social capital being something that people spend when they're trying to achieve coherence. So if I'm angry at someone else, I'll sit down over an hour, have a beer, and all of a sudden we're spending that quote-unquote capital to be able to achieve coherence. As the environment for that sort of, for spending that stored social capital for the purpose of collective coherence becomes disadvantageous, as we're seeing in the United States and in the West, uh, it becomes glaringly, it becomes, there's a big contrast between the environment in the United States where social cohesion is at a minimum and let's say in China where, you know, through Confucianism and and sort of a dictatorship, social cohesion is a different problem that can be almost technically solved almost. Um, So whereas perhaps on the military front, America still does retain that advantage, the shining star that is American exceptionalism in the minds and hearts of its people is waning because of this sort of longer, quote unquote, fourth generation warfare <clears throat> program that, you know, not to get too conspiratorial, uh, but we can map it by its effects. And we do see extreme polarization, extreme dissonance, incoherence. And so I wanted to, to throw the following question to you, which is auto cults. Auto cults being this, this incredible concept uh, by this guy called Pat Ryan. And it's essentially the idea that social cohesion can be technically solved as soon as we start to map out using neural networks, how people do sense making and how people engage in cults via a process of like semiotic hacking or designing their very ontologies. You can pretty much solve technically the problem of, of sustaining social cohesion and scale up the production of stored social capital which is that thing that didn't scale when the industrial revolution hit, right? That ankle point when we started to get a lot of material goods, that was not a point where social cohesion and the idea of God scaled. In fact, that was precisely the point when the idea of God started to wane. Um, Looking at that, looking at China, looking at how China has this different way of, of sustaining coherence, looking at how special economic zones are set up there. I don't know. All that I'm thinking is that the, the, one of the big problems today, and that's precisely something that you like to work on a lot, is coherence, is, is, is mediation. Yeah, I, I, I love what you said. I, I never heard of the thinker that you mentioned, but I'll look into him later. And I, I, really, I really like that idea, and I, I, really, uh, I really drive with that idea. I mean, I've written a little bit in the past about uh, how I think the, the possibilities for engineering ideal social formations is actually much more available than people think. It's much more possible than people think. And I also think here there's there's a little bit of what you mentioned before about how in the supreme danger is the saving power also, that, that famous Holderling quote that, that Heidegger brings to bear. I, I really do see this in, in the American political context. I mean, I do think that right now it looks on one level like American governance is so terrible. And this is the, this is the, fashion, this is the fashionable educated opinion right now that Oh, you know, compared to China, compared to other countries, the American political system is just utter shit. It's completely broken. The situation in America is so bad and it's going to keep getting worse. And 
I, I, I'm very cautious about this, this fashionable idea right now because the way that I see it is there's a very good possibility that because the American federal government is, does seem increasingly incapable of dealing with, with major threats. Like it, it does seem pretty obvious now that, you know, the U.S. federal government is not going to save us from any type of global catastrophic threat now or in the future if you look at its handling of the pandemic. Um, that could be the saving power also. And this supreme danger might be the saving power also in the sense that what is the signal that actually gets sent to American citizens? The, the signal that gets sent to American citizens is you better get more creative. You better get more self-reliant. You better be ready for the next global catastrophe that the federal government's not able to handle, right? So whereas like the typical average Chinese citizen right now is kind of maybe they're feeling like, oh, man, this is nice having a, an authoritarian communist party who uh, will literally lock people in buildings against their will if they might be contagious with a, a virus mm -hmm. or something like that. You know, the, right now in this current moment, maybe the average Chinese citizen feels, you know, proud of their government and feels confident that, you know, the, the, the CCP has their interests at heart and is going to take care of them uh, as China grows into the future. But is that really the ideal mental state that you want your citizens to have? I mean, I think in, in the American context, what you could very well imagine is that because of this wake up call of the, of the, of the failed governance response to the pandemic, it's going to send the millions and millions of, of smart, interesting, creative people in America, it's going to send them into high gear. It's going to put a fire under their ass to change their lives even more, to take new risks, to create new systems, to create new structures, to create new organizations and communities that are going to be possibly even better at, at, mm -hmm. at becoming anti-fragile to global catastrophes. So in yeah. my, I think there's a very decent possibility that over the next 20 years, 50 years in America, the federal government keeps getting shittier and shittier, shittier and, and less and less kind of powerful and effective, which frankly, from a certain perspective, maybe is a good thing given, especially from a social justice perspective, if you think like, you know, um, if, if you think, if you think basically the, the kind of crony capitalist uh, US government elites are, are in large part a, a force for evil in many ways, um, or if you're a kind of right leaning libertarian type who thinks that, you know, the US government is mostly just a, a kind of theft machine. Either way, you know, there's there are reasons maybe to be happy about the federal government kind of lose slowly losing any type of power or relevance at all. And what could very well happen is you see a, a huge upsurge in uh, kind of community-based, local-based uh, mm -hmm. creativity and technological applications. You know, I am, I'm imagining like, well, I'm, take, take me for instance, I'm already thinking very hard right now about like, how can I maybe create my own like community and I don't know, like the fucking mountains of Montana or something like that. That's like, has super good Wi-Fi. It's like super technologically up to speed. It's like all of the benefits of, of modern mm -hmm. urban living, but maybe there's a way that I can just make it for me and my friends in somewhere that's like uh, fortified geographically and totally autonomous and is better than anything currently available mm. as a life option right now. I'm already thinking about this because right yeah. now I'm stuck in a fucking house and I haven't left it in like several months. And frankly, if this is going to happen again, I don't want to be stuck in like a normal house. I want to be living with a hundred people somewhere beautiful in an autonomous city where we can like do our own crazy, interesting, liberating technological and social experimentation. Like the pandemic is making me really get more serious about how I can take uh, calculated risks to bring that type of future into in, into being, and I think if if that happens to other American people, there's a very good chance that in in, in the not too distant future, America becomes this amazing uh, uh, dynamic patchwork of of local, technologically sophisticated, but also more kind of community based tr trad values based, more cohesive communities. Um, in, in, in large part because we have to respond to the inability of, of centralized governments to, to do that. And if that happens, I think there's a very good case to be made that in 100 years, you'd rather be in America uh, living in my community in like the, the mountains of Montana or something like that than hooked up to crypto and all those kinds of other shit that, we, that at least we're able to do because we have the freedom to, do, to try it than to be like an average uh, Chinese citizen. I think it's possible. Mm. I, wouldn't put a, I wouldn't put a lot of money on it, but it's possible. And that's the vision that I would like to encourage people to focus on. That's a good answer to the problem that I was about to, to, to point out as, as kind of a, as kind of a sort of counter argument or like in a playful way, trying to see what you, what you would come up with in, in response to this. And this is my final question, which is, um, will there be say, uh, will it be easy to achieve coherence amongst 
a population that is increasingly radicalized, especially and mainly because of technological and capitalist reasons, meaning that the it kind of plays to the, it's kind of a dark underbelly of what you were mentioning as a potentially positive scenario, the fragmentation and atomization, uh, you know, it might lead to a beautiful patchwork of city states, which somehow cohere and don't engage in conflict amongst themselves. But what we're seeing is a trend toward these, towards kind of an opposite side towards uh, division within the, the, the sort of body of American politics and population. Um, and mm -hmm. also, I mean, the capital presupposes a mode of relating with experiences and, and, and ex existence. And that mode of relating with experience and resistance doesn't, does it have our best interests in our mind as previously God would have had? Mm, right. So great questions. I mean, I do think that you're, you are going to see more and more inequality in terms of social community quality and mental cohesion. I mean, I, it seems pretty clear to me that right now that people's brains are being fried at, at, a, at a crazy degree. I mean, myself included, I'm not putting myself above that. I mean, just the current uh, technological, social, techno-social, if you will, context of, of, human, of human life is uh, accelerating and kind of it's short-circuiting us in ways that we don't even fully understand. It's taking out the, the sense-making capacities from, from underneath our feet in ways that we don't even fully realize. And you have a ton of very smart people, capable people, good people who are basically spinning their wheels like crazy on the internet, on Twitter, uh, doing this and that, and uh, making no sense and, 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 and producing extremely undesirable, unpredictable outcomes that they don't even really want to be producing. Uh, and if that is true, I think things are going to start to bifurcate. There are going to be people who wake up to this and realize, oh, the entire context of normal human life is changing. And if we want to thrive, if we want to not just survive, but thrive, that we need to start be get, getting super creative about re-engineering everything around us, re-engineering re our friendships, our relationships, our, our technologies, our communities. And people are going to go all in on uh, creating new, better, very novel systems for living, I think. And some of those people um, will do well doing that. Some of those people will succeed. Uh, some of those people will fail. But... Uh, trying and failing is not that bad because you can quickly just copy what starts to work, right? So if there's a proliferation of experimentation and one one pilot project takes off and does really well, if my project, if my pilot project fails, it's not that big a deal because I'll just, I'm paying attention. I'll just switch to what's working. Um, nice. The real threat or the real problem, the fear is all of the people who are uh, just going along like normal in a context where normal is no longer available. And yeah, I think those people will increasingly find themselves in despair. And uh, sorry, there's some knocking here. There's some work being done at the house. Uh, th those people are going to find themselves increasingly confused, increasingly despairing, and they're probably going to become increasingly desperate also. And you're going to see more and more violence and, and rioting and these types of things, probably, possibly. I mean, I don't know nice. how I put a confidence interval on that, but um, I, would, I would expect for large numbers of people who try to just basically keep spinning their wheels in the same old way, it's going to get worse and worse for them. Um, but what, what then will happen is ideally the, the people who figure out good ways to live are going, are going to have to um, reach out a kind of olive branch to all the people that are suffering. So I think about it as like smart, creative and courageous people have to create life rafts for building their own effective communities uh, that can navigate this, this bottleneck that we're going through. And they need to actively be welcoming all the, all the normal people who are falling into desperation and, and crazy life. And, and frankly, there will be choices. Like it will be possible for the, for the lost uh, people to like get on board with other things that are working. Um, but uh, it's going to be up to, it's going to be up to the people who are lost to admit that they're lost. And this is like, again, where the Christian, perspective really kind of comes into play in a way that I think is not just like, it doesn't just sound nice. It's not just like a mystical thing. It, it's actually rational and actually uh, really communicates real concrete things going on, which is that, you know, um, there are like, if you look at the, if you look at the craziest people on the radical left who are like most obviously unhinged and just saying actually really stupid things and their lives are really not going well for themselves. And, and that's something no one wants to talk about, but a lot of the local 
you know, people on the radical left, they, their whole lives are actually in, in really bad disorder. Um, no one ever talks about that. It's, it's seen as like below the belt to say that, but it, but that's important data to pay attention to. Um, like people like me who kind of like leave all the stupid bullshit and I'm like, yo, you guys are crazy and you're, you're going to keep downward spiraling if you keep trying to subscribe to these like idiotic ideas. Um, people like me, I go off, I'm like, okay, fine. I'm going to do my own thing. And I'm, I'm so far, I'm like doing pretty well. And I'm, I'm confident I'm going to like find out a way to live and thrive. And uh, I have, I've, I've like gathered a lot of people around me to do that. And so things are looking up for me. Things are, and I'm sure for you folks too, like for, there's a lot of people like me, I'm not saying I'm special, but I'm just saying as things work out for me, um, I like, I stay in touch with like my old friends from the radical left who I think like, you know, uh, took the wrong pill and kind of like really went gung ho on really self-destructive ideas and practices. Like I reach out to them. I'm, I'm like, you know, I can help you, right? Like I, 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 I have a lot of ideas. I have things that are working out. You can be a part of it. Like you don't have to be stuck in that rut. And th it's up to those people to like, they proudly, and I, I would say even sinfully, they, they look at me and they say, no, you're like a reactionary alt-writer now. I'm not doing anything with you. You're you know, you're, you're bad, Justin, that's their own pride and sin. That is basically, um, and resentment. It's that, that's their prideful, sinful resentment that is basically keeping them locked in a downward spiral, uh, headed straight to hell. And it's up to them to, to, to be able to, to, uh, want and to subscribe to the like better ways of living that are available to them. And, and so this is a, this is a difficult thing to talk about because our, you know, our modern kind of Western culture, or secular atheist culture like really doesn't know how to talk about any of this and even i find it difficult to start talking about it i don't want to sound like some sort of um like corny like uh like uh, arrogant christian or something like that because it's, it's not the case but there is a real thing here where like those people who are who are drowning in their own confusion and uh being destroyed by uh technological and social changes that they don't even fully understand it's up to those people to um to overcome their own pride and their own addiction to their own uh, kind of slothful, sinful, resentful attitude, frankly. And it's going to be ugly because a lot of those people are not going to want to do that. They're going to cling to their own, to their own pride and their own sinfulness. And we, and people who are healthy and living correctly are going to watch those people suffer and die and, and, and in a real sense, go to hell. Um, this is, this is just the difficulty of, of the human condition, I think. Well, Justin, we've already gone over time, so probably need to let you go. I do just want to signify, actually, though, that I think Pat Ryan would really be worth checking out. He's just done this whole lecture series on well, leading up to this idea of auto cults, but his conclusion was pretty much a Girardi and Christian Jesus built into some kind of... I wasn't actually there, but Daniel was there. But given your own Christian background and the fact that you're in this space, I think a conversation with him would be very fruitful. Yeah, I would love to. I'd be, I'd be more than happy to. Um, yeah. and I, I always love hearing about new thinkers that I don't know about. This has become something I've been really obsessed with trying to find, trying to get my finger on everyone out there who's, uh, interesting and maybe not well known yet. So I love tips like that. Thank you. Fuck yeah, man. Anywhere. Do you want to let people know where they can find you? I'm all over the internet. I'm on Twitter, uh, Jay Murphy with no you, uh, my main kind of platform is uh called other life you can check out the other life now.com uh you can subscribe to the other life podcast wherever you get your podcast and uh yeah the one thing i'm doing right now one of my major initiatives is i'm building a private community for other independent intellectuals i basically created some systems and structures to uh allow anyone who's working on a kind of long-term creative or intellectual project i've built systems and structures to really help you do that and to stick with it over time and to get more work done and to get more work done effectively and to be able to have greater impact and uh, do that better and better so uh yeah that's kind of in private beta so i'm not really pushing it publicly yet but it is up and running we have a bunch of members and it's really growing and i'm super pumped on it honestly it's, it seems to really be working and i'm now pretty confident honestly that for anyone who's trying to pursue an independent intellectual or creative project and if you're if you're struggling with anything if you're not getting as much work done as you want to or you're not getting traction like you might hope to i'm now you know after doing indie thinkers and building it for about six months now i'm actually now at a point where i'm actually really confident and able to tell people straight up I really think it can actually help a lot of people who are, who are struggling to do that. Uh, it really seems to be working for a lot of people. So very proud of that. And, uh, but it's still low key. I'm not even really hyping it or publicizing it too much, but uh, you can check out indiethinkers.org if that's something that people are interested in. And uh, the only other thing is I'm doing a course right now with uh, the British philosopher, Nina Power. It's going to be on George Bataille, the French philosopher. 
And uh, I think it's going to, it's my second serious kind of online course. And so I'm really pumped on it because I learned a lot the first time around. So I, now I'm, I'm very confident that I can deliver a really, really uh, transformative intellectual social experience. Uh, it's an eight week thing. It's going to start in July. And uh, so, yeah, if you're interested in that, you can, uh, you should be able to find links to, to sign up for updates uh, without a problem. You can go to theotherlifenow.com slash Batai and you can find more information there. I think that's enough. I don't want to, I don't want to uh, uh, shill too hard, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Really, I appreciate the invite. Thanks for the thoughtful questions. And, uh, you know, I'm always grateful to have an opportunity to rant. So thanks for your patience also. <laughs> Thank you so much, man. <laughs> All right, guys. Best of luck. Hello, people, once again. And if you made it this far, well done. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you like what we're doing, then please consider supporting us on YouTube and on your podcast app, sharing the content round and talking to people about it. And also consider giving us a donation on patreon.com forward slash technosocial so we can keep growing the show. Ciao.